thousands of years ago, a group of slaves just escaped from Pharaoh in the land of Egypt constructed a tent in the desert. Outside the tent, every day they killed animals. The blood of the animals stained the desert sands. God himself told them to do it. These people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, did it because they were seeking forgiveness for their sins. Is it necessary today that blood be shed so that sin can be forgiven? Most of us, certainly me, most of us are interested in having our sins forgiven. Guilt is a very, very heavy burden to carry. Guilt can make you sick. Unresolved guilt because of sin can make you very, very depressed. In fact, guilt because of unresolved dealing with sin can push you over the line into insanity. So most of us today are somewhat interested in getting rid of sin. And I ask the question today, can we possibly discover the secret for the forgiveness of sin from these ancient Hebrews and the tent they constructed in the wilderness? I want you please to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 6 for a sample passage on how a person gets his sins forgiven. Leviticus chapter 6 verses 1 to 7. These words of course were written by Moses and written about two and a half thousand, three and a half thousand years ago. Leviticus chapter 6 verses 1 and onwards. This is a passage that talks about the forgiveness of sin. And I'm going to suggest today that even though this is a very, very old passage, the principles apply to you and to me living today in this crazy world. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do. Before you read on, may I say to you today that human nature hasn't changed a lot, has it? These are the sins of our day and our age. These are the sins of Los Angeles where we live today. Cheating and stealing and lying and committing perjury. And the Bible says, if a man does any of these things, when he becomes aware that he has sinned and broken the law of God, he needs to do something. 
at us much more than just saying, I apologize. <laughs> it's much more than just saying, hey, I'm sorry, I goofed up. I want you to read on, if you don't mind, please. The Bible says, verse 4, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to him or the lost property he found or whatever it was he swore falsely about. He must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. And uh, as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of these things he did that make him guilty. So the Bible says... If you and I steal, don't just say, I'm sorry, take it back and add 20%. The Bible says, if you and I have sworn falsely in a court, don't just say to God in secret, hey, I apologize. Go before the judge and say, I lied. And if the judge says you go to jail for 10 years, so be it. The Bible says that there are clear ways that a sinner can get rid of his guilt. And all of these things happened outside or inside the Hebrew sanctuary. This tent that was built by the children of Israel in the wilderness to teach the people the love of God, the law of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, and how you and I can get from this place to the Father's house. Would you please come over here with me to Exodus chapter 25 and verses 8 and 9, dear hearts and gentle people, and it's music to my ears to hear the pages of the Bible being turned in this my church. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so God said, I want you to make a sanctuary. I want you to make a tabernacle and then I'm going to come and I'm going to live with you and I'm going to dwell among you and I'm going to show you the way from this world to my house. I want to talk about this and I want to tell you what it all meant and how it applies to us living here in Los Angeles and North America and in Moscow in these latter days. I want you to notice here on the blackboard, I have drawn very, very roughly what the tent of meeting looked like. It was surrounded by a large courtyard. Out here is the courtyard. Out in the courtyard, there was the altar for sacrifice. And when a person sinned against God 
And we all sin, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then the sinner would come here and he would meet the priest. As you can see on the great pictorial representation there, you can see there the sinner coming with his offering and coming to the priest. And right here, the blood would stain the desert sand. Here there was a lava which was made out of brass or bronze and there the people would come, the priest would come and the priest would wash before he went into the presence of God. The Bible tells us that before you and I can come into the presence of God, we need to be washed. As the old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And then after the washing, you stepped into the temple itself, into the sanctuary, into the holy place. It's an interesting thing that if you were to step inside that temple, you would be for a little while dazed and amazed. Because outside the temple or the sanctuary or the tent of meeting, was a very inconspicuous thing. It was made out of the skins of animals and some would say, and rightly so, that the outer wall of the temple was simply black. And so if you looked at this, you'd say, it's a pretty drab sort of thing. Do you know what this temple really represented? It represented the person who would come and dwell among us. The Bible says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But as soon as you walked in through the veil, you were surrounded by gold. The whole of this temple from top to bottom was covered with solid gold. And on the southern part, you had seven golden candlesticks reflecting their light in the golden walls. And this represents Jesus, the light of the world. Did you know that without God, without Christ, you and I are walking in darkness? That's why I say to you, you need to read the Word of God every day because the Word of God gives us light. Some people say, I do not know which way I ought to go because I seem to be in the darkness. I say, my friend, come into the tabernacle of God and walk in the light of God's Word. And then on the northern part of the sanctuary, you had the table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, this bread represented the bread of life. I want you to know today that you and I cannot exist on things and we cannot receive sustenance simply from the food we put into these temples. We need to have the bread of life. And the Bible tells me in the Pentateuch that this bread was changed. Do you know when it was changed? When they brought in new loaves of bread, they changed that bread every Sabbath day. That's why you and I ought to come to church on the Sabbath so we can get some new bread. The Bible tells us that God told the people of God, you've got to keep that bread there, but you've got to change it on the Sabbath. 
And if you are running empty today, I want to say to you, you need to get into the habit. You need to get into the attitude of keeping the Sabbath and coming to church and getting some new bread. And then as you come to this veil between the holy and the most holy, you have the altar of incense. And that incense had to be the only type in the world. And as the priests were praying right here, and as the children of God were around the tabernacle praying, the incense went up with their prayers. And that was to teach the people that our prayers without the mercy and the grace and the righteousness of God are not worth a hill of beans. And so as the people were praying, the incense, this beautiful, fragrant incense was going up to the very throne of God. Now you couldn't do this. Only the high priest could do this on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. He stepped inside the most holy place. You couldn't walk in there because if you walked in there as a sinner, you wouldn't walk out. Because this is where the very Shekinah glory of God was manifested. And there you had the ark of Almighty God covered with gold. And over the ark, as you can see up through there, you can see the two angels. And right inside the ark of God, as I told you last Sabbath, God told Moses, place the testimony. And whenever the word testimony is used in connection with the sanctuary, it only means one thing, the law of Almighty God as found in the Ten Commandments. And when you come through to the last book in the Bible, Revelation 15, Revelation chapter 11, you see there a great picture of the temple of God in heaven in the last days. And John saw the testimony. He saw the Ten Commandments. And here you have the strongest evidence that a Christian saved by grace will keep the commandments of God. Now I want you to come over now to the book of Hebrews if you don't mind. Come over here to Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 22, dear hearts and gentle people, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, and the book of Hebrews is God's explanation of the sanctuary of the tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, the Bible says, in fact, the law requires, and when it says the law, it means the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness and there is no remission. Out here in the courtyard, and this was the great point of the sanctuary, out here in the courtyard, there was a bleeding animal. It was innocent. And it was dying for the remission of sin. And it was dying because the law of God had been broken. And there would never have been a bleeding lamb in the courtyard if there had not been a broken law in the most holy place. And the Bible teaches and it talks to you and it talks to me and it says that we are all sinners. Did you know 
on top of this ark, there was the mercy seat. There was the mercy seat, also, also made of gold. And on top of the ark, there were the angels, and they gazed down upon the mercy seat to show the interest of the angelic hosts in the law of God and in the blood of Jesus and in the plan of redemption. And as God looked upon his law, particularly on the day of atonement, he looked at it through the mercy seat that was covered by blood so that the people could have their sins forgiven. Amen. And the great truth of the sanctuary is this, never forget it, that there is a law. There is a law and every one of us is guilty before Almighty God. We have all broken the law of God, not once, but a thousand times. But I'm here to tell you today that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I've got an article here I want to read you about the law. Because today we're living in a very superficial age. We live in the marshmallow society. A society which is candy coated, but a society which largely has lost its hold upon God. And people say, what is the problem with all of the crime in this great nation? I want to tell you the problem. It is not because people do not have the opportunity. It is because people have the opportunity and continue to flout the holy law of God. What we need in this nation is a rebirth of belief in the gospel and the law of God. I want to read to you from U.S. News and World Report, June 28. In fact, where this doesn't come out for another two days, but I'm going to read it just the same. It's a great article. It's called John Leo on Society. May the field be with you. Tarzan and his ape mother appeared on Good Morning America last week in a scene from the new Disney animated movie, Tarzan. The ape was warmly, warmly lecturing the boy. Now forget what you see, she says. What do you feel? My heart, replies Tarzan. He feels her heart too, and they hug. Tarzan is said to be a very good movie. And isolated scenes watched while brushing one's teeth at 8 a.m. probably shouldn't be overanalyzed. Still, I think the lovable step ape made a big mistake here. Listening to your heart is important, particularly in a Disney movie. But little Tarzan wouldn't last two days in the jungle if he forgot what he saw and merely consulted his feelings. More likely the movie would end abruptly as Tarzan became a snack for some emotionally underdeveloped but visually alert predator who lacked a feelings-oriented advisor. <laughs> Isn't that good? Did you get it? Oh, that's good. Because I'm not going to read it again. Tarzan is hardly the only fictional hero placed in needless jeopardy by the feelings culture Hollywood division. 
It happens to Jedi Knights too, in one Star Wars picture after another. In fact, this is one of the nagging problems of being a Jedi, which is otherwise a very good job. You have to be able to fight deadly duels blindfolded and drop important bombs without looking because in times of crisis, feelings are more important than eyesight, facts, reason, technology, common sense, and computerized bombsites. In the original Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Did I say that right? Been practicing that. <laughs> In the original Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi sternly tells who? Luke Skywalker. I'm with it, folks. Stretch out your feelings. Let go of your conscious self and act on instinct. And finally, let go, Luke. This last piece of advice comes when Skywalker is foolishly trying to destroy the evil Death Star by using a computer instead of his feelings to hit a target the size of a grapefruit while flying 300 miles per hour at an attitude of 20 feet. Luckily, Luke has the wit to turn off his mind and his computer so there are no remaining obstacles to successful bombing. Turn off, turn off your mind, Turn on your feelings. In the forthcoming episode two of the continuing Star Wars saga, a dramatic debate takes place among galaxy historians. They argue over whether the Jedi got their odd philosophy of celebrating every feeling as a precious trump card and struggling to stamp out every trace of actual thought. Most of these scholars will conclude that it came from a brief blip in, let me say this, most of these scholars will conclude that it came from a brief blip in American popular culture in the emotionally fertile period of 1990 to 2010, when the United States decided to stretch out its feelings just as Obi-Wan shrewdly suggested when they put him in the first Star Wars movie. This was the period in which America was busily switching to a feelings-centering morality. Since the self was more important than society, values created by the self, feelings, took precedence over any social or traditional values which are the encrusted remains of others' feelings and biases. The language of me decade, pop therapy, not shaken off until the late 2020s, played a role too. If we are open to experience, wrote the famous therapist Carl Rogers, doing what feels right proves to be a competent and trustworthy guide to behavior which is truly satisfying. So more and more laws and behavioral codes were written in the language of feelings and insensitivity. Politicians felt everybody's pain. With thinking gone, with thinking gone, colleges turned into summer camps, heavy on entertainment, pop culture, and consumer satisfaction. 
A small remnant of pro-thinking students was left alone so that someone would produce the great death stars that could be blown up and the computerized bomb sites that could be turned off. Everybody else, even the cartoon apes, came out in favor of feeling overthinking. But it didn't last very long and even the Jedi became disillusioned. All this takes place in episode two. A disturbance in the farce. The rational mind strikes back. Did you get it? Yes. Today's society is saying, well, I don't think there's any such thing as objective truth. What you think and what I think, well, it, well, there's no, you can be right and I can be right. And we both can be completely opposed to each other. And therefore, whatever happened to logic, whatever happened to if A is A, A is not B. But in the new thinking, not only is A, A, but A can be B, and A can be Z, and A can be D. And therefore, whatever happened to the law of God, I want to tell you what happened to the law of God, it is still there. It is still there. After the commandments have been broken a million times, there's not one chink or one mark on the enamel. We've all broken the law, and that is why there is the Lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus with the prophetic insight of a true prophet, John motioned to Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The ancient ceremony of the, and the ritual of the ancient sanctuary all pointed to Jesus, the only one who can take away our sins. And people ask the question, was the gospel ever preached in the Old Testament? Yes, it was preached here. Because God was trying to get into the minds of the people that there is a law, but the only way home to the Father's house is by the blood in the courtyard, the blood on the hot sands of the desert. Before you can be forgiven, You've got to recognize your guilt. That's the rub. That's the difficulty. Human nature, being so perverse, and I speak of myself, human nature wishes to rationalize. But the Bible says, before you can come to the Lamb, You've got to say to God, I am a sinner, and that involves sometimes public confession of sin and public restitution of stolen property and stolen reputations with 20% added on as the value added tax. This is the word of God. Forgiveness is made possible 
by the death of the Lamb in the courtyard. Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, my dear friends. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and onwards, and here we have the language of the sanctuary. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and onwards, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. If you read this text in some translations like the King James Version, and if you look at the margin, it says that Christ is our mercy seat. And as the Father looks at the law through the mercy seat covered with blood, so if you come to Christ, he looks at our sins through the blood of the cross. The greatest truth in the Bible is this, that although there is a holy God and a holy law that you and I have all broken a thousand times or a million times, there is a holy Christ who dies for our sins on the cross and makes atonement for the sin of the world in our place. I want you to think of that Black Friday 31 AD Passover time in Jerusalem. I want you to think of a man in prison. He is a wild man. He is a thief. He is guilty of insurrection. And more than this, he is guilty of murder. And he's in prison. And while he is in prison, as he sits there in prison, he hears across the streets of Jerusalem, he hears the sound of iron meeting iron as the nails are driven in by the Roman soldiers. And he fully expects that soon he is going to be crucified. He is a bad man. Somebody has said that the very word Barabbas could be interpreted somewhat loosely as son of everybody and son of nobody. Barabbas, the representation of the human race. You and I are Barabbas. We've all broken the commandments of God. Some of us have been thieves. Some of us have been gossips. Most of us have and are Sabbath breakers. And we've all broken the holy law of God. You may try to get away from that law of God, but you can't get away from that law. God Almighty wrote that law. And it's enshrined in the heavenly sanctuary. And you can read this in Revelation 11 and Revelation chapter 15. And as Barabbas sits there, he ponders his life of evil. And then he hears along the corridor the steps of the Roman soldiers coming to take him away. And he knows this is the end. And the Roman soldier comes in opens the door, and the centurion comes and says, Barabbas, you're free. I'm free, yes, because Jesus 
is on the cross. There were three crosses prepared that day and one cross was for Barabbas. And he walks out into the bright sunshine and he blinks his eyes and he gazes towards Calvary where a man is being nailed to a cross. The lamb in the courtyard outside the city wall there is a green hill far away without or outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all as the lamb was slain in the courtyard so he was slain in the courtyard outside the city and Barabbas says he took my place. At three o'clock that day, that Black Friday, the time of the Passover, in the temple of King Herod, the priest at three o'clock was about to slay the Passover lamb. It was slain at three o'clock. And as the priest took the lamb and took the knife to confess over the lamb, the sin of Israel, and cut his throat. At that moment, Jesus cried out and said, It is finished into your hands. I commit my spirit. And with those words, there was an earthquake, and the veil of Herod's temple, of this was only a replica, this was only a little thing. Herod's temple was a great thing. But as Jesus said, it is finished. The veil of the temple the, into the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. That veil was 90 feet high in Herod's temple. It would take more than a man to tear it. It was torn by the hand of Almighty God. And as the priest stood there with the lamb, and as the earth rocked, and as Jesus died, the lamb ran away. You and I were the lamb that got away. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. All this was taught in the sanctuary, that there is a law and there is a God and there is a priest and thank God there's a lamb. Galatians 3 verse 13, let these words sink down into your minds today. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You say, was this Christ cursed? I cannot believe that this Christ was cursed. How could this Christ be cursed? Because the Lamb of God took upon himself the sin of the world. He took the sin all from the broken law of God. He took your sin. He took my sin. He took the sin of the homosexual. He took the sin of the murderer. 
He took the sin of Barabbas. He took your sin and he took my sin. And when he was placed upon the tree, the wrath of God was directed against his own son, part of himself, who bore the sin of the world. He was cursed that you might be blessed. Amen. He is the lamb who bore our sin. Please let me have this great book. Thank you. I recommend it to you, The Desire of Ages, written by a person who wrote with more than human inspiration. I want to read you a paragraph out of this outstanding book. I don't know any book beside Holy Scripture that magnifies Jesus more than this book. Listen. The author, Alan White, says, Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin. The terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him the coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation would be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Who killed him? Well, we say the Romans killed him. We say the Jewish leaders killed him. All that is true. But I have a message for you today. You and I killed him. It was our sin that killed him. There is a Negro spiritual that says, 
Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I have an answer. Yes, we were there. We killed him. Your sin, your unbelief, my sin, my unfaithfulness, our sin was placed upon him, the Lamb of God, who knew no sin. And for him, there was no light. For him, there was no bread. For him, there was no incense. For him, there was no Shekinah glory, but hell and damnation. And when the blackness came down upon the earth at midday, he could not see through the tomb. He knew that he was the substitute and he couldn't see the father. The father was there with his son. The father was suffering with his son. The father felt the curse of sin. But the son was not aware of the father's presence. And he took hold of the Roman Niles and held on until that great heart of love burst for you and for me. Behold the Lamb of God. Harry Anderson, a great painter whom I admire, did a painting of the cross. And standing at the foot of the cross, two children, a boy and a girl, and they gaze up into the cross. And the little girl says, why did he have to die? He was so kind to us. He died because of our sin. Not because of his sin. The great Holman Hunt did a picture of Jesus in the carpenter shop. If you look at his face, it's hard to understand what's going on. It's either a look of complete ecstasy or a look of pain. He stands at the carpenter's shop. He's laid down his tools and he's gazing up. It's late in the day and the sun is shining through the window. And the way the sun is shining, it catches upon some of the tools and the window frame and it casts a shadow on the wall behind Jesus. And it's a cross. He stands submissive to the will of God, the Lamb of God. The cross consumed him. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. He wasn't born to live. He was born to die. He was the Lamb. There is forgiveness for you and for me. But firstly, we've got to stop playing games with God and recognize our guilt and our sin and our hypocrisy and our lying and our cheating and our stealing. We've got to come to the priest. Who is the priest? Ah, there's a priest. Christ is the lamb. He is also the priest. Does the church need a priest today? Yes. Christ is our priest. No earthly man is good enough. Christ is the priest. So there's forgiveness for you and there's forgiveness for me. 
but I must stop playing games with God and lay aside my double-mindedness and admit my guilt and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to me my transgressions and come to the priest at the door of the tabernacle and place my hands on the head of the lamb and confess my sin. And the Bible says, the priest shall make atonement for his sin and he shall be forgiven. My message to you is this, come to the altar and come with the lamb and come to the priest now. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father, breaking your law must be a pretty awful thing because it caused a lot of blood to be shed in the desert. That was nothing compared with the blood that was shed outside Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago when God's own Son who became flesh and tabernacled among us was nailed to a tree and cursed because he bore our cursed load what love he has for us that he would so identify with a lost humanity what love what grace as we are praying here today we want to capture the moment even though it's impossible fully and think of the darkness that came upon the soul of the Son of God the separation, the utter depression, the feeling of depravity from sin that swept over him, the hopelessness and the despair that forced from his lips the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We recognize today he goes to that cross that we who belong to the tribe of Barabbas might be free, might walk in the sunshine and be redeemed. Forgive us, Lord, as individuals and as a church for playing games with God, for our smug hypocrisy, the fact that we lie to ourselves and lie to others and don't come clean with you. But today we want to come clean with you. We come to the door of the tabernacle and meet the priest and meet the lamb. As we're praying today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in the presence of God and the lamb, how many will say, God, I freely, frankly, Without covering up, confess my sin to you. Can you raise your hand? 
If you can do that today, no more games, God. No more games. No more playing with you, God. I'm just here today confessing and forsaking my sin, even if it means I've got to go and make restitution with 20%. We're prepared to do it. That's why we're raising our hands. Please lower your hands. How many today, by an act of faith, will now put their sin upon the Lamb of God and accept forgiveness? Would you raise your hand? If today, put your hand up high and say with me, today, repeat it, today, I confess my sin. And today, I place my sin upon the Lamb of God. And I accept forgiveness. Now, O oh God, take me into the most holy place. Look at this now, dear friends. Look down here. Keep your hands up. And as the law of God was placed in the heart of the sanctuary, say that, as the law of God was placed in the heart of the sanctuary, so place your law in my heart. So place your law in my heart. I worship you. I bless you today. I thank you for Jesus. I love you. I give you my heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.